Hi, it's Jason. Welcome to part two of our special two-part episode on storytelling. If you haven't listened to part one, we recommend you listen to that first. In this episode, we'll talk about the power of storytelling, the different types of storytelling, and the stories that have shaped us. So, let's continue the conversation. I feel like we've been talking a lot about stories in a specific sense, right? In the novel, movie, writing the story itself. I'm curious to know your thoughts on storytelling as a concept. And to give you an idea, there is a scientific study that's called the Significant Object Study, which is exactly what Suk Yun Lee did, you know, 15 years prior. But what they would do is they bought a bunch of things for a dollar on eBay or in Suk Yun Lee's example was on Craigslist. And then what they did is they got writers to write a story about the thing and then yes. repost it on yes. on Craigslist. And in the significant objects thing, they did this. They hired a bunch of writers. They wrote a story about the origin and just kind of paint the picture. And they reposted it on eBay. And one of them sold for something like 2,685% higher than it was originally bought for. The idea is that the power of story can transform a mundane $1 object into something much more precious. And this is where I really love the idea or the concept around storytelling, because it doesn't have to be a novel, a movie, a giant story. It can just be a few succinct words that paints enough of a picture to increase the value of the object or the thing or the service at hand. So there's a whole industry around that called modern art <laughs> and advertising yeah. and advertising. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Well, that's the whole idea behind the brand, right? A brand has a story behind it, which makes it more valuable. There's a reason why Nike sneakers are more valuable than the unknown brand that people might not know, even though they might be made in the same factory, they might be the same materials being used. Arguably the the cheaper unknown version might be a better product, but it doesn't matter because there is no story that people buy into. It's the Simon Sinek, start with why stuff, the golden circle, putting your purpose and your why at the center, because that's what people really end up buying, not the how and the what, but the why behind your brand. I used to call that multiple dimensions and the, the dimensions of a product would be the first dimension is that it's a thing. So you need a thing. I need a potato. So here's a potato. And then this the second version of that was a story, which was my potato is better than your potato. This this potato is is superior because of these specific things. So then you're differentiating this potato is redder, richer, yellower, whatever it is, has less eyes, <laughs> that kind of thing. And the third dimension was that it's a lifestyle potato, that this this potato fits in better with your lifestyle. So here's the brand story around this potato. It is the story of this farmer. It's a story of Prince Edward Island. It's the it's this, that, and the other thing. So that's the third dimension. And the, and the, the fourth dimension is that not only is it a lifestyle, but it is personalized. So this potato was grown specifically for Dre because of his genetic makeup and how his taste buds work and how he's going to typically prepare and consume it. It's basically custom uh, made for 
the individual or, or this group. So those are, to me, those are the four dimensions. What's next? I don't know. That last dimensions is called nutrigenomics, by the way. Nutrigenomics. Oh, I really yeah. want a French fry right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, French fries that are, uh, that personalized. are genetically <laughs> personalized to do the, the best things to your body based on your uh, you know, DNA profile. You need more of this and less of that. And these uh, potatoes can be engineered to give you exactly that. I had a concept around a extra special K. It's a cereal that, that, that is a nutrigenomically designed. I like that. I wanted to ask you guys a question and to ask it, I need to talk for a little bit, but I promise that I'll stop talking and let you talk. We all love systems. We all love methodology. That's something that we all find very interesting. And there is a very systematic way of telling a story. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how stories have been broken down. There's Dan Harmon's story circle and there's the monomyth and and the hero's journey. And then there's like Kurt Vonnegut's seven shapes of a story. And there's there's a whole bunch of very specific things. And if you go back to why Pixar was successful in the beginning, it's because the dudes that were making Toy Story went to a they went to a course. They took a course. They took notes in a storytelling course, and then they just religiously followed those notes. And they have like Pixar's twenty two rules of storytelling or something like that 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 they followed for a very long time until Cars two, and then they they screwed it up and 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 sort of shot their eleven mega hit winning streak. So methodology only works for so long and, and it can get tired. You know, we've, we've all heard about formulaic movies. And my question, I guess, is also a comment. The people that have broken the molds have created new molds, right? So you've got someone like, like J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote a very non-traditional at the time anyway, narrative, which was here's a quest and it didn't follow the typical crescendos and, and crashes and, and crises and resolutions and, and, and setups, etc. cetera. It, it didn't follow a lot of those, those memes and, and methodologies and therefore no one knew exactly what to do with it. So it was broken down into three volumes, etc. So what's your take on the methodologies around storytelling and what are some of your favorite examples of breaking that methodology and coming up with something amazing? I think there is something to be said about people who can break the mold and introduce something new or do something old in a new way that ends up creating either something that stands out or that spurs a whole other set of thinking. So there is that distinction, for instance, like between psychological storytelling and sociological storytelling. Right. So something like Tolkien is more sociological because it deals more with the system, whereas there's other stories that are more psychological because they're dealing with your own sort of internal, you know, driven narrative around a particular character. So I think there's that distinction. But to your point, the first example that popped into my head was Knives Out because it it lays out a whodunit story. So it takes that formulaic Agatha Christie sort of model of talking about the murder where you have the scenes that take place in the library and you have the detective that comes in and solves everything and then you have the big splashy reveal at the end. And he took that and split it up and then mixed in the Hitchcock suspense 
archetype in the middle. And so he gives away that beginning of like, you know who did it, but does this person actually get through it, but then still gives that payoff at the end of, no, actually, now you really know who did it with that scene in the library. And you so fully it's understand the really, yeah. Oh, and you fully get it. But it, it's just so much fun to watch because it takes away that typical expected trope and still gives you that satisfying end that you would expect with that type of narrative to come through just in a completely different way. So it's like, I, I hate using this term now, but it subverts your expectations in all the best sort of ways, which Ryan Johnson did not necessarily get a great rap for before, but now he's done a really good job with. So I think there's something to be said about stories that take the formulaic archetype and break them somehow and then achieve success by it. And I can think of a number of examples like in literature where George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, part of the reason why it was really great is because one, it's a sociological story. It fell apart as a TV show when it tried to become a psychological story instead of a sociological story. But as a, a novel, it was a mixture of historical fiction and fantasy. And so you have a writer that walked the tightrope between those two genres really well. And so combining those two things led to something new and interesting in a way that no other sort of fantasy captured people. I think my favorite form of storytelling is, is music, because there's a lot that you can do in music telling a story. You have the dynamic of the music itself beyond any of the words or the things that you you might say. That's not to say that's not a super important part in, in movies, storytelling specifically. But what I like about music and song is that it's a way of really condensing and being able to study a lot of formula. And I think there is a lot of formula in storytelling. And we see this become more popular as something comes up. In pop music, someone will break the mold and create something new and fresh. And that becomes something that we like. And we start to repeat this. And the repetition breeds familiarity. And other artists will start to mimic traits of the formula and then you end up with this very formulaic style of of music one that i was look, listening to or watching a youtube podcast on was lord the new zealand singer she effectively broke the entire genre of music that we hear today the strange inflection whispery voice you know lana del rey's all all owe something to Lord because she broke a the mold in that genre. I did a presentation almost 20 years ago now called The Game of Opposites. And what I did was, is I dissected popular music in the past 20 years. And I showed how this genre led to this genre by taking the genre, deconstructing its constituent components and you could just flip one of them on their head and recompile it and you end up with something fresh and new. And this was the change. This was the mold that needed to be broken. One of the examples was uh, grunge. When grunge music was popular, right? It was male. It was aggressive. It was like Nirvana and Mudhoney and all that kind of stuff. And the genre that came right after grunge was the Sarah McLaughlin, like Lilith Fair genre. It became the opposite. It was female. It was not aggressive. It was, it was all of that. And the dominant music that came after that was 
electronica, Crystal Method and uh, Daft Punk and so on and so forth. And that was a total opposite of the acoustic and lyrical angle. And this is just looking at what was topping the charts. I analyzed 20 years of this, and then I looked at what was currently popular and predicted that the next genre of music was going to be something, you know, folky or rootsy or whatever. And this was a few months before Mumford and Sons type of genre became the <laughs> dominant thing. So when I look at breaking the mold, uh, a lot of it is what's the most popular thing that's on television, in movies? What's What are the formulas? And you don't have to create something brand new. You just have to put a twist on that formula. And that might be enough to release the mold and give you the opportunity to offer something fresh so in the world. I feel like you touched on storytelling in the most meta sense of all, which is that it is about telling and retelling and retelling and remixing, telling it in your own way, telling it in your own way again, someone else picking that up, telling it in their own way. The The way that, that storytelling has passed on for thousands of years has been that, right? It's just, what is interesting to me? What am I going to embellish? What am I going to change? And then realizing, oh, crap, people are getting bored with this story. I'm and then this new guy comes in and he's got a completely fresh story. And then everyone leaves that that old guy and goes and hangs out with the new guy and listens to him and then riffs off of that and starts changing that story and changing it and changing it and changing it. I The thing that I'm maybe most concerned about, not, not concerned about the thing that I think we've reached a point in our culture now where there there just aren't the same consolidation of storytellers. There's this massive, everyone wants to be the storyteller. And so there aren't as many listeners. Or maybe there are as many listeners, but they're listening to a smaller group. Now, I don't know if that is just, I don't know if that can be borne out in, in with evidence because we talk about being a very divided, bipartisan, bipolar society right now where we kind of take sides. But but when it comes to the stories and big, massive hits, you can pick from a thousand genres and subgenres now in terms of what your interests are in music, in, in fiction, in you name it. Well, there is sort of a homogenous aspect to stories, right? Like we've been telling the same stories over and over again. Like how many times has Hollywood made the same story over and over again, just in remakes and, and taking the same themes and all of that stuff. So part of that I think has to do with, we need more diversity in storytellers, right? The people who are sharing, we probably need more influx from different cultures and different perspectives on that. Like Parasite winning at the Oscars, I think is a, a really good, nice signal that, you know, there's other voices out there that can tell these stories that are um, deep and, and are relevant to all of us, but tell them from a different perspective. I think the commoditization of stories is also problematic because there's a formula behind the algorithms, not even just the stories themselves, but the algorithms that determine whether something is successful or not. And we're all sort of feeding into that. So there's a whole confluence of things that are happening and maybe now with things destabilized a little bit it gives a little bit of an opportunity for other voices to emerge and other types of stories to emerge out of this too because for the first time in like a long time now the tools of storytelling have been equalized for a little bit 
So, you know, the, the way that a, an indie creator who hasn't had much of a platform tells a story might be much more similar to somebody who has had lots of success, but now is also stuck on Zoom the same way the rest of us are. I really like what you just said a lot. I do too. Can I add a story that I think sums up the point between music and the taking something and running with it? I always no. think of All Along the Watchtower. <laughs> So one of my, my favorite song is All Along the Watchtower, but I like a very specific rendition that was done at the Isle of Wight by Jimi Hendrix. But that's a song that was written by Dylan, that was taken by Hendrix, that was then given to Hendrix because he just did something entirely new with it, and then was played by Hendrix over and over and over again, but each time it was just a little bit different. And I've always loved the Isle of Wight rendition, because I think it plots perfectly to the structure of an archetypal narrative in fiction. Not only the telling of the story that's taking place within the words, but the telling of the story that takes place between the notes and the way it sort of builds to a climax and then drops off, I think is like perfectly emblematic of that story structure, that archetypal story structure. So that particular version has always resonated with me for that reason. So you didn't even mention... Bono's version uh, with you too. Oh, that's no. <laughs> we stopped at Hendrix. <laughs> we don't go past Hendrix. Sometimes the retelling of the story is better than the original telling of the story. And in that story that Leia just said, sometimes the cover is better than the original. And I agree with you. I think Jimi Hendrix cover of that is, is better than the Bob Dylan one. And I, I would even think that Bob Dylan might even agree with that, I think that the Jeff Buckley version of Hallelujah is a better rendition of the Leonard Cohen version of Hallelujah, which is an amazing song in and of itself. But sometimes the retelling of it is important because you never know when it's going to be better than the original or maybe add something that the original didn't have or, or maybe be more relevant in a time when the original wasn't aware of. And we shouldn't be too critical of people who are retelling stories because I think it's an important part of of what's going on. You see a lot of people throwing shade at at musicians for like doing a cover song, and you know cover songs are not not bad. They don't you don't have to always do original music in the same way that you don't always have to do original stories. You know Alex Garland did that with Annihilation. He literally just ad- interpreted a single reading of that book and wrote a screenplay from rote memory and created effectively a cover, a cover story, a cover song of a story he read an homage and turned it into a movie. Yeah. An homage. Yeah. And it, and it was beautiful and they're both beautiful, beautiful, unique works of art in, in my opinion. I think that that's really fascinating that retelling and retelling. Cause I know for myself, and I'm sure for you guys, my question to you guys is, do you have a story that you often tell that has just gotten better and better and better? The way that the more times you've told a story about something that happened in your life, the better it's gotten. Do you have a story like that? I think there's a thing to be said about how parents exaggerate stories as time goes by. So I, I get told a story every once in a while where I ate like 12 bananas as a child. And it started off as like six bananas or something, like a reasonable amount of bananas, maybe not six. And then it just grew and grew in in the telling of the tale and became even more and more exaggerated. So there is a little bit of that where we start to embellish and add 
you know, an element each time. And I, I don't know if that's related to memory anymore or just the act of storytelling, that it's no longer necessarily true in, in terms of facts, but it's true it's, in terms it's, of... It's a mythologizing of, of the story. It's, it's starting to take the essence of the story, just like the essence of a song or the essence of, of a poem or a movie, and then turning it into something that effectively creates the same feeling or tries to replicate the same or a similar idea or feeling uh, across to to whoever the audience is at the time. There's the other side of that where telling it too many times can make a story stale. Like when people get sick of hearing it or have just seen the same thing over and over again. It's like, I don't want to see that anymore. Wouldn't you say that that, that, that means the storyteller has lost their touch because they maybe the story is grown stale or the the storyteller is no longer adapting the story well enough for the audience that could be the case i think the in the examples that dre was pointing out it was that there was their own individualized spin on it right they took an interpretation and they took a different lens on it and that's what made the retelling interesting is because they brought something of themselves to that story that the original artist may have not brought and that makes it a unique piece in, in a different sort of way. But I think to our point, when we talked about imagination and creativity, sometimes creativity is hard and it can be easier to sort of take something that you know works, particularly when there's money behind it or there's a consequence behind it and just sort of replicate the same thing that you know could potentially work as opposed to rethinking it and adding a new layer, adding nuance or whatever it is to it. I think comedians do do that, right? Comedians are probably really good at that. And one of the shows that I've watched recently that I've absolutely loved is Daniel Sloss, an ex. It's because you don't know that he's building to a point this entire time. And it's a brilliant freaking point. But you, you're kind of along for the ride. And he's sort of tricked the audience into going along with something. And he reveals it. He reveals the trick that he does on stage and bringing everybody along. But it's a really great story. And then he's done another one, I think it was Jigsaw, where he's talking about relationships and his views on relationships. And that caused, I think, 14,000 couples to break up. <laughs> and like he, he became known for a little while for, as like the comedian who gets you divorced, <laughs> pretty much. And that's all that people were sending him is like, you ruined my relationship stories. And he's like, no, I didn't ruin your relationship. You ruined your relationship. <laughs> I just provided the other person with a different perspective. <laughs> just look at your story with it was kind of interesting stories could often just mean something to different times you know we can't just keep on telling the old stories as the world evolves if we kept on telling the same old stories we told 50 years ago then every hero would be a man and every story would be told from some white perspective these are the things that maybe some classic types of stories the boy meets girl can evolve these need to relate to the you know people today based on what's important to people. It doesn't mean that the seed of the story isn't relevant and important. How can we evolve these things over time as the world evolves and as people evolves and as ideologies evolve? Was it you who was saying in one of the previous conversations that science fiction often gives the author permission to explore things that society's not ready to 
ready to fully embrace yet because uh, I forget who I remember my mom used to have a wall of science fiction books when I was a kid, a, a fantasy and science fiction. She was a mega reader and the entire living room was plastered with books and she had just about everything. And she was talking about this one story and I honestly don't remember the title. You guys might know it, but there was an entire science fiction series about these this race that was essentially gender fluid i mean they could be they would go through these different stages and they would be they would be male and they would be female and they would be a third sex they would be a fourth sex yeah it's ursula le guin yeah left hand of darkness yeah science fiction uh, plays that role i think post pulp science fiction has really played the role of of being able to do that being able to go places and sometimes hide in plain sight. The original series of Star Trek did an entire episode on, it was about uh, racism and it was about two groups of aliens and they were, they were striped down that half of their bodies were dark on one side, light on the other side. And these two aliens were at war with one another and they couldn't understand how, why you do not like these people. And uh, their whole thing was like, well, they're, they're dark on the left side and we're dark on the right side. That's the star-bellied Sneetches story from, from Dr. Seuss. Is that what that is? Yeah. There, there's star-bellied Sneetches and Sneetches that don't have stars on their bellies. And then the, the one, so one of them becomes more popular. So the Sneetches without stars in their bellies get stars stamped on their bellies. And then the ones with the stars in their bellies are like, oh, crap, now there's a whole bunch of star-bellied Sneetches. So then they start removing the star. And then eventually they forget who had stars and who didn't have stars. And, they, and they're and they just completely confused as to who they're supposed to hate. It's kind of an awesome little story. That's for great. Kids. It probably came out before Star Trek. <laughs> Starbelly Trek is what it is. But yeah, there was that episode. And I, and I thought that was a really uh, clever episode because they were able to disguise uh, controversial subject matter in plain sight and yeah. get people to... to really objectively sit back and consider the argument. And some people probably were forced to reconcile these thoughts that they had in their own mind about their own opinions towards people and humanity. And that's where I think science fiction plays a really important role in, in being able to uncover these, uh, these biases that we have and to bring to light issues that might be nascent haven't quite arisen yet, but that enlightened writers might be on top of. So the neuroscience supports that around storytelling, because we know that moral lessons that are embedded in stories are absorbed differently in the brain than moral lessons that are just told to you. So if I were to get into a political argument with somebody else, the parts of their brain that lights up are the same parts that perceive an attack on identity. Whereas if I make those exact same sort of points that I wanted to make in the context of a story that actually bypasses that feeling of attack and makes you wanna lean in further. And so I think the speculative genres, to your point, Dre, have done a really good job at challenging, you know, what were once fringe views and bringing them into people's regular lives in a way that doesn't feel antagonistic. So you can take science fiction and you can, you know, present an entirely different view of the future where there are different characters, there's different representation, you have different stories, you have different morals, and none of that feels antagonistic because it's being told in the form of a story, but, you know, 
it's still creating some sort of construct for you to engage with those lessons. So what are some stories that really hit you uh, at a formative age? What's, what's some of the most powerful or impactful, they don't have to be important works or anything, but, but something that you read at a time, a story that you heard maybe even, maybe it wasn't a, a book, maybe it was a TV show or a movie um, around in, in your teens that, that kind of changed the way you thought about the world. I think the Velveteen Rabbit is the first story that comes to mind. So that's the first narrative that I remember reading that has always stuck with me. And it was this idea that the toy was made real through love and got its experience of being that real rabbit because it was loved and was more special for being loved than the rabbits that were taunting and teasing the Velveteen Rabbit. And then the the next set would probably be all of the superhero stories that I watch, which is not as like deep <laughs> in terms of you know the messaging and all of that stuff. But I there was something to watching those cartoons, like the X Men and the Spider Man stories, that spoke to this other reality that you could be something more within that was less restrictive somehow that was. I still had the moral lessons and all of that, but then gave you freedom to be outside of yourself in some ways. I think that has probably shaped my thinking more than I thought I did. And then I, I don't know, as a kid, I read a lot of murder mysteries for a while. I went on a binge and maybe that's why I like the psychological thrillers now. Yeah. For <laughs> me, early high school was reading Brave New World. That was really impactful for me because it gave me it was maybe my first exposure to a story that I truly enjoyed reading as opposed to the other stories that I had to read in English class. Also, I grew up in French uh, Canadian world. So every class was French except for English class. So it was, it was disappointing to read books that I didn't enjoy, but Brave New World was one that, that I really enjoyed. And I, I really liked the, the storytelling and the whole idea around Soma as being an allegory for, well, in this case, you know, entertainment and so on and so forth. But another one that really made me think a lot was Flowers for Algernon. I thought that it was, it was good and it's a, it's a fast read. It takes a couple hours to read that one. I would count Brave New World in 1984 amongst my influences as well, because I read them back to back and then had to do yeah. comparative analysis on them in, in English. But I think that was probably the political messages, the sort of thinking about what is possible, like the fact that 1984 had passed and, you know, it wasn't like that reality, but is now reflecting the reality that could emerge. And then Brave New World was so far ahead of its time that we just, we still haven't reached that yet and the elements within that, but then still had archetypal, deeper, darker themes that are very, very relevant to what we're seeing and what we have been seeing. So I would also count those as excellent stories for anybody to read. Nice. How about you, Jason? I think it's a Starbelly star, star Bear. Right? <laughs> what were they called again? Starbellied Sneetches. I think nice. that I was a middle-aged man as a teenager. The things that... that uh, I related to the most were like A World According to Garp, the book by John Irving, which is sort of a weird, it's it's Americana, it's, it's American fiction. It's sort of, it's slightly surreal. I wouldn't call it magic realism by any stretch, but it's definitely sort of American strange 
that book really affected me. And then my absolute favorite book of all time in high school was Breakfast of Champions. And I read through almost all of Kurt Vonnegut's books. And what I loved about his style of storytelling was just how ridiculously simple it felt to read, how easy it was to read. It felt like you weren't reading anything challenging except the ideas were extraordinary. And and it was like an inception almost, that, that you're reading this really easy to read. It feels like it's not this crazy, challenging Ulysses or something like that. It's It's just easy speaking language. There's use of repetition. It almost feels like poetry. And yet there's this almost like Mark Twain, this, there's this this wisdom and and humor, and then behind it is a moral lesson that just all of a sudden you realize, holy crap, I, I think that this isn't going to go the way it's supposed to. And, and you realize that there's consequences to actions. And I think Vonnegut did a fantastic job of writing characters that had mental illness. So there was one uh, last thing I wanted to want to pop in just the idea of storytelling. And I, again, I'm, I'm very interested in like the concept of storytelling beyond just stories themselves and literal storytelling. But, you know, when does storytelling become diluted? When does storytelling, because I think the word storytelling gets thrown around a lot these days. It's very buzzy right now. Everybody wants to be good at storytelling. And I notice it a lot in terms of foresight and futures, but I think that it, it extends beyond that because we've gotten into this mentality over the past little while, like whether you're in marketing or you're in futures or design or whatever it is, that storytelling is king in some ways, right? Like this idea of storytelling and world building has become of paramount importance. And so you have everybody scrambling and trying to figure out how to do that. But I think think there are degrees to storytelling. And I think there are, you know, storytellers that do an exceptional job and then storytellers that can tell a, a personal story, but can't maybe necessarily do that in a professional capacity. There is something to be said about the years and years of practice that goes into great writing and great fiction. I think back to Stephen King's On Writing, where he, you know, talks about himself, and this is like a prolific writer, like, Everybody kind of knows who Stephen King is, even if you don't read Stephen King's work. And he describes himself as a good writer and not a great writer. He says, I'm not a great writer. I'll never get to the point of being a great writer, but I'm a good writer. And so I kind of keep going at that rate. But I don't know if this goes back again to the Dunning-Kruger effect, which we talked about before, but storytelling is another one of those things that's highly subject to the, the Dunning-Kruger effect because... I think we all tell stories and sto storytelling is so pervasive to who we are and to who we are as a species that we automatically think this is something we can do in some sort of capacity that requires uh, a level of polish or professionalism or whatever it is to it. So it's the reason why everybody thinks they can write a book, right? Everybody's got a book idea, but having a book idea is not the key thing. It's the execution of it that really matters. And you know what exacerbates that is that there are these systems and there are story circles and there are monomyths and you just people feel like if they just follow the the 
the instructions that their story is going to be a hit and or or well loved by all and they don't necessarily feel like they need to put in the time and i'm guilty of that <laughs> because <laughs> i created models that are based on this sort of stuff that give you that thing but the i think there is something to be said about practice like anybody could potentially get there but you have to put in the time and the energy and all the effort so it's like being a voracious reader is not enough that is step one that is the equivalent of like watching videos on youtube and then declaring you can swim because you you know watched <laughs> other people swim <laughs> so you know how but there's more to it than that and so the the constant sort of practice and effort that it takes to become good at something is underestimated in, in this degree as well. And I think it's underestimated partly because our lives are just entrenched in storytelling left, right, and center. Yeah, I, I think the word storytelling often gets co-opted by people and organizations that frankly have no business even using the term storytelling in extreme type of ways. And FITC pr produced a video a few years back where Stefan Sagmeister did a monologue on storytelling, which I thought was hilarious. And he just he just goes to berate the roller coaster designer. He's like, no, you're not a storyteller. You're a roller coaster designer. And that's great. <laughs> but you're not telling stories. Uh, I urge you to watch this video. I think it's maybe a minute long, but it's it absolutely sums up the ridiculous uh, extent to which the word storytelling is being co-opted by by everyone from bakers to mousetrap makers. Anyways, this has been an epic episode. We'll have to decide whether or not we split this bad boy into into two. A sequel. Oh, or a prequel. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, let's do that. Let's do it. <laughs> it's a great hook. Do the second half of the episode first. Bring in the prequel. And then we can uh, work on the origin story from there. And then we'll tell it out of sequence like Star Wars. And, or, or, or any Quentin Tarantino movie. Anyways, from all of us at the Post Normal Show, we will see you in the future. Bye.